Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the big market-moving central bank announcement this week was not the Fed. Uh, They came out with their so-called hawkish hike. I went over that on Wednesday's podcast. But yesterday, the ECB came out and, you know, they were supposed to announce a end of their quantitative easing program, their own version of the taper, which they did. But they surprised the markets by indicating that they would not raise rates above zero where they're stuck until the summer of 2019. And the markets had not expected such a delay in rate hikes, so it was kind of a dovish uh, tightening announced by the ECB. Now, when the Fed raised rates, the reaction was pretty much what I expected. The dollar did not strengthen. Gold did not go down uh, because all of that had been priced into the market. What caused the dollar to rally and gold to sell off was the ECB and their unexpected ease, which put a bid into the dollar. We got a huge rise in the dollar yesterday. We got you know like a 2% or so drop in the uh, value of uh, the euro against the dollar. And the weakness in the euro and the therefore strength in the dollar caused a lot of the emerging market currencies to sell off as well. So it was a huge dollar rally, not because the Fed hiked, but because the ECB effectively eased. And, you know, initially, yesterday, gold jumped 2% in in euro terms. In fact, it jumped up to the high end of the range that had been trading against the euro, and it was very close to a breakout against the euro. It was only up a couple of bunks against the dollar, so... All of the rise uh, was in terms of euros and, of course, other currencies that also fell against the dollar. But this morning, the traders came out huge. I guess when we couldn't get above that key level in terms of the euro, there was massive selling of gold this morning right out of the gate. And gold finally dropped about 20 bucks. We actually broke down below. Remember on Wednesday, I talked about the fact that gold had been in a $12 range all month, and I knew that that wasn't going to persist, that gold was going to have to break out one way or the other. My guess was that it was going to break to the upside because I expected that gold would rise after the Fed hiked rates, which is what it had been doing uh, pretty much after every rate hike. But I think what I didn't expect was the ECB to come out with an effective ease, and that's what caused gold to break out of that range. So I was right about the breakout, but I guessed wrong as far as which way we would go because we ended up down. We were down about 23 bucks today. Gold closed just below 1280. And so 
Now either we're going to continue to break down near 1250 or maybe this is a, a little bit of a head fake. I normally sometimes before uh, a market goes in one direction, it'll head fake the other direction to stop some people out. It's hard to say, but I do think that what the ECB just did in the very short run could cause a little bit more buying in the dollar. But of course, the markets are wrong if they think the ECB is really going to wait over a year before raising interest rates. I do not believe that that is going to happen. I still believe that the ECB is actually going to be hiking rates probably around the time that the Fed starts cutting them. So this whole idea that America is going to keep tightening while the rest of the world is easing is wrong. And still, everybody is under the impression that the global economy is slowing down with the exception of the United States, right? The United States is this island of growth in a sea of weakness. And I think they've got it backwards. And, and that is ultimately what's causing all the opportunities in the market. But one of the reasons that I believe that the ECB is going to be tightening far sooner than the markets expect is look at what's happening at inflation in the Eurozone. You know, when Draghi gave his press conference, following uh, their announcement, when he talked about the fact that they were not going to raise rates until uh, summer of 2019, the rationale was because they wanted to make sure that inflation was meeting their objective. And their objective is to have inflation close to but less than 2%, right? That's their policy goal. Now, of course, the original policy goal of the ECB was just to have inflation less than 2%. This close to but less than 2% is something that Draghi introduced because kind of made it up in order to justify this reckless monetary policy. Because if inflation is just 1%, the ECB should not try to move it up to 1.9. I mean, 1% is better than 1.9. The whole original idea was 2% was a ceiling. And so as long as you were below the ceiling, great. And the, the more below it you were, the better. But in order to justify all this money printing and all this QE and whatever they were doing to prop up all these bloated governments, they came up with the idea that we need to be as close to 2% as possible without going over, you know, kind of like the price is right. Well, you know, we got the Eurozone CPI numbers out today for me. Year-over-year, year, CPI in the Eurozone up 1.9%. Now, I mean, how much closer to 2% can you get without going over than 1.9? I mean, they're not satisfied with that? I mean, what is Draghi going for? 1.99? Right? We need to create more inflation because we're only at 1.9. We're not quite close enough to 2%. I mean, first of all, what makes them think that they can fine-tune it that much, that they can get to within a tenth of a percent? And then, of course, if they get to 1.99, what, maybe they want 1.999, right? I mean, how ridiculous are they going to take this, as if the numbers are even that accurate to begin with? But if you have to stay below 2%, why would you want to risk getting that close? Because what happens if we get to 2.1? Do they got to start slamming on the brake? Do they got to start tightening? I mean, if you got to stay below 2%, you would think you'd want to have a little bit of a buffer between where you are and 2%. You wouldn't want to get this close. But look at what's going on in Germany. Germany, year over year, 
CPI up 2.2%. So Germany is higher than 2% by more than their Eurozone in general is below 2%. But look at producer prices in Germany, up 2.9% year over year. Now, that's a leading indicator of where consumer prices are going because wholesale prices go up and then businesses pass on those higher costs to the consumer. So if wholesale prices are rising by 2.9%, what direction does that tell you that consumer prices are going? They're going up. And if Draghi is saying we're going to keep the, the pedal to the metal, we're going to keep interest rates at zero for another year, and inflation is already accelerating, it's past 2% in Germany, clearly it's going to pass 2% in the rest of the Eurozone, where is it going to be a year from now? I mean, 2.5% in the Eurozone, 3% in Germany, maybe more. Is the Bundesbank going to sit back with inflation running out of control and just allow the ECB to keep interest rates at zero based on the fact that their goal is to get inflation close to 2% when it's already above 2%. So I think everybody just assuming that uh, you know the ECB is going to leave rates at zero for all this time. I think they're wrong. Now, maybe they'll try to get away with it. Maybe they'll try to rationalize having it above 2%, but they're not talking about that now. They're not talking about symmetry uh, like the, the Fed is doing. They still are sticking to their rhetoric that we need to be below 2%. You know, I, I missed this in the uh, press conference from Wednesday uh, with Powell, but he was talking about inflation and he made a Freudian slip. He said that we are going to make sure to keep inflation above 2%. And then he corrected himself and said, I mean at 2%. But even though he went back and corrected himself, I think that was a Freudian slip because he knows the goal is to keep inflation above 2% or not even a goal. He knows inflation is going to be above 2%. So he might as well pretend that's his goal because that's what's going to happen. So at least he can claim that he's getting success. But the ECB, they cannot have inflation above 2%. Now, maybe they're going to say, well, it's the core that we want to have below because the core is still a little bit below 1.9. I forget, maybe 1.7 on the core. But they have to keep headline inflation below 2%. I don't think Germany, the Bundesbank, is going to allow the ECB to come out and say, oh, now we're switching up and now we just care about the core CPI. And they don't care about headline but because headline is what everybody buys. And, you know, those are the prices that people actually pay. And I don't think they're going to allow, you know, oh, let's not count food, let's not count energy. You know, the Bundesbank is a very staunch inflation-fighting bank, and they are able to give the ECB this leeway because, you know, inflation was still below 2%. Of course, officially, I'm sure that their CPI is not accurate, just like ours. So if they're at 1.9% officially, I'm sure unofficially, it's higher than that. But it's already higher than that in Germany. That's obviously pissing off the German bankers. And by the time Eurozone inflation gets to 2.1, 2.2, we'll probably be at 2.5 in Germany, maybe more. And so I think the markets have this wrong. But I also think they have it wrong to think that the Fed is going to be able to continue to tighten and that the U.S. economy is just going to be fine, that the U.S. markets are going to be fine. It's not. In fact, the inflation problem, too, it's not just 
in the Eurozone. I mean, we've got an inflation problem in the United States. In fact, what yesterday we got the import prices that came out year over year up 4.3%. And this is before the new tariffs that are coming out. We got prices up 4.3%. Obviously, we have to buy those imports. That's why they're coming in. Those things are being driven by inflation. In fact, we got the retail sales numbers uh, that also came out yesterday, most recent month, up 0.8%, which was much higher than everybody expected. And the initial reaction is, oh, this is great news. But you have to remember that retail sales are not adjusted for inflation. They are just measuring the dollar price of what's sold. And I believe that that jump is not because consumers bought more stuff. It's because they spent more money on the stuff that they bought because prices are going up. So if prices are going up, then retail sales are going up in dollar value. But it doesn't mean the volume is going up. It doesn't mean people are buying more things than they were buying before. So they don't have anything extra to show for the extra spending. They just bought the same stuff or maybe even less stuff. But whatever they buy, they paid higher prices for it. So I think this is evidencing inflation. I mean, inflation is going to break out all over the world. I mean, we've already created the inflation. It's all the money supply. It's all the QE. It's all this money printing and bond buying. That's the inflation. It's just that it's just starting to move from the financial assets, stocks, bonds, real estate, into consumer prices. But this is the beginning of a huge wave of inflation that's going to you know, engulf the entire planet. But I believe that Europe is going to be more likely to fight the inflation based on the influence of the Bundesbank than will the Federal Reserve based on the influence of Donald Trump uh, trying to get reelected. I mean, there's going to be lots of political pressure on the Fed to prop everything up and not to fight inflation, to embrace the higher inflation. The Fed is already talking about that by allowing inflation to be over 2%. You know, the Freudian slip just admitting that it's going to be over 2%. So we have no... Uh, break on inflation. Plus, we're hopelessly in debt. You know, we need inflation. We have these huge trade deficits. That's not the case with the Eurozone. Uh, they can more afford to have higher interest rates. Now, that is going to create some political problems in some of these countries like Italy, right? Greece, Spain. Uh, but, you know, that's something that they're going to have to deal with because I do not see Germany just basically saying we're going to be a high inflationary economy. They are not going to throw away all of their tradition of sound money, I mean, they threw away partially when they went into the euro, but I don't think they're going to abandon it completely. I think, you know, they are more likely to try to fight inflation than the U.S., uh, which will not, there's no chance we're going to fight it. We're going to embrace it. We're going to pretend it's good for us. You know, if you remember uh, back in the 1970s, right, when inflation really became a problem, Right for the first time, and a lot of it again was due to all the money we printed in the 1960s. But Gerald Ford, who came out with the uh, you know the win win whip inflation now, when he came out with that, he said inflation was public enemy number one. Right? Well, who causes inflation? The government. The government prints the money. In fact, my father, the book that I've talked about, his book, The Biggest Con. Well, his original title for The Biggest Con was the U.S. government, public enemy number one. His publishers, Arlington House, changed it to the biggest con. 
But in the book, he, he mentions right in the beginning that that was his initial uh, idea for the title. But the reason that he wanted to call it U.S. government public enemy number one was because he knew the U.S. government, through the Federal Reserve, created all the inflation. And so if President Ford said inflation is public enemy number one and the government is the creator of inflation, then it is the government that is, in fact, public enemy number one. And why is inflation public enemy number one? Because it robs the public of their wealth. It robs the public of their purchasing power. And that is exactly what is going to happen. Right? Rather than governments defaulting on their debts, they are just going to inflate them away. So they're not going to take away your money. They're not going to rob you of your money. They are going to rob your money of its purchasing power. But the net effect is the same. The difference is how you plan for it, how you protect yourself. And of course, you know, the government creates all this inflation, but they never accept responsibility for it. In fact, Donald Trump, again, just the other day, was out there blaming OPEC for rising oil prices, right? Well, you know, if Trump thinks oil prices are rising now, although they were down quite a bit today, everything was down today except for the dollar and U.S. Treasuries, uh, but if Trump thinks the price of oil is going up fast now, wait till he sees what happens once the Fed has to monetize the deficits that he's created by increasing government spending and cutting taxes. Because, you know, back when Nixon was president and we had the, this big spike up in oil, of course, Nixon and everybody was blaming OPEC, saying, oh, you guys are jacking up the price of oil. But OPEC wasn't increasing the price of oil. The United States was debasing the value of the dollar. We went off the gold standard, 1971, and we started paying OPEC for oil in dollars that were collapsing in value. And so it wasn't that OPEC was raising the oil price. They were simply adjusting the oil price for the fall in the value of the dollar because we were asking OPEC to sell us oil, the same oil, for dollars that had less value. Well, when OPEC sells us their oil, they got to turn around and buy stuff with the money, but the price of all the stuff was going up because we were debasing our money. So it wasn't OPEC's fault for raising prices. It was the U.S. government's fault for debasing the dollar so that we were using to buy the oil. And the same thing's going to happen this time. It's not going to be OPEC or the greedy uh, speculators or the, the companies that are trying to gouge the customers, right? The government always likes to create inflation and then blame the businesses, you know, or blame the, the unions, you know. Uh, that's why, you know, Nick, Nixon had wage and price controls. The idea behind wage and price controls is that inflation is being caused by a businesses raising their prices or by workers demanding higher wages. But the reason everybody is demanding more money, whether it's prices or wages, is because money is losing value. And so you need to earn more money to maintain your purchasing power. So the government puts the cart before the horse when they have wage and price controls. And of course, wage and price controls are not going to work because you're just putting a Band-Aid on a cancer. The cancer keeps getting worse because you keep printing money. And then businesses and workers find ways around wage and price controls. Like, well, don't give me a raise. Just give me health insurance as part of my... Uh, a part of my salary. That's how a lot of this stuff started. Or businesses start coming up 
with brand new products. You know, like a grocery store will come out with a different cut of steak that never existed before. And now it can put whatever price on it it wants because it's not raising its prices. It's just got a brand new product. I mean, everybody was finding ways to get around the wage and price controls. But eventually, of course, they got to get rid of them because they result in shortages. Right? You can't buy stuff. And then eventually when you take the wage and price controls off, then prices shoot up to catch up to where they need to be because the government kept printing money. And that is the direction that we're headed in. Everybody is still convinced that there, there's no inflation. When the evidence is overwhelming, inflation has been hiding in plain sight. Right? It's been hiding uh, in all these asset prices, but nobody cares. And then the government's you know, trumped up, uh, uh, no pun intended, uh, economic numbers. You know, which mask the true rate of inflation. I mean, who knows how much higher than you know what they officially admit. I mean, in the U.S. now we're about what two 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 three is our year over year CPI, and I said one point nine in the eurozone. But I'm sure on both sides of the Atlantic, inflation is actually running quite a bit hotter than the governments admit, which means GDP growth is much lower. In fact, Trump was on television today, today, again fielding questions from the press. And he repeated the false statement that America today has the best economy in its history, in the history of the country, going back to the Constitution, right? So st starting with George Washington to right now, the economy is better today than it was at any time in our history. Now, either Trump is just lying or his knowledge of American history is very limited. I mean, limited maybe to the last few years. He knows nothing about American history. In fact, if you knew anything about American history, you would know that the best economy we ever had was in a period that I think Mark Twain labeled as the Gilded Age. And I think that was approximately 1870, right? A little bit after the end of the Civil War. So 1870 to 1900, right? And during that period of time, we had massive economic growth. Now, they didn't even keep the GDP statistics back then, so I don't know if we know what the GDP was, but they have all sorts of other ways to measure you know, things, you know, production, output, uh, living standards, uh, you know, real wages, and we have never seen an economy like that. It was the biggest boom. I mean, and we were bringing in immigrants by the millions were coming in uh, to our country, but during that period of time, the standard of living of the average guy, rose like never before, probably in world history, not just U.S. history, in world history. And sure, it was the age of the robber baron. You had the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, right? These guys were getting rich, but everybody was benefiting. The poorest people, the middle class, there were huge fortunes that were being generated, and they were trickling down, right? And everybody benefited from all that capitalism because what we didn't have is an income tax. We didn't have Social Security. We didn't have a minimum wage. We didn't have all sorts of government. We had lots of freedom. We had minimal taxes. And we probably had the purest gold standard in the U.S. history. So we had sound money. We had limited government. And we had massive economic growth on a scale the world has never seen. Not just you know absolute growth in America, but compared to the rest of the world. How fast America grew relative to any of the economies in Europe or anywhere in the world, we've never had a period of time where we outgrew the world as rapidly as we did back then. So Trump is not even close if he thinks we have the best economy in our history when it pales in comparison 
uh, to the Gilded Age. But you don't even have to go back to the Gilded Age. We had a much better economy in the 1980s, in the 1990s. I mean, if you want to measure it just by GDP, which is probably what the tr Trump is looking at. So I don't know what he's talking about. I mean, last year we had 2.2% GDP growth. Now, if he thinks this year is so much better, we are running up massive amounts of debt in order to fuel what he thinks is a good economy. But it's living on borrowed money. The government didn't borrow any money during the Gilded Age. That was real economic growth. We weren't levering up. You know, that was that was legitimate. Today, whatever growth we have is at the expense of a collapse tomorrow. We're borrowing all the money, right? Our GDP is growing much slower than our debt, right? So we're, that's not real, right? But Trump keeps reiterating these lies, and everybody's still buying it. That's still the mentality out there that everything is great in America, and, you know, the rest of the world is in trouble, and there's the demand. Uh, for dollars. I, mean, I mentioned before on another podcast how crazy it is that people think that the fact that we're going to have so much debt that we're going to be selling $2 trillion worth of treasuries, that somehow that's going to make the dollar go up because so many now everyone's going to have to buy dollars to load up on those treasuries. Why would anybody want those treasuries? That's probably the worst place you could put your money, but people are jumping to these erroneous conclusions. Bigger debts are bad for the dollar because what they mean is the Fed is going to have to monetize those debts. There's no way that we're going to find buyers in the private sector for those bonds at rates that we can afford. It's going to have to be the Fed. People are delusional if they think the Fed is actually going to shrink its balance sheet. But right now, delusion is what's ruling the day. In fact, look at how everybody reacted today to the new trade war. Right, Trump announced today new tariffs, $50 billion worth of tariffs on uh, on China. And the initial reaction is, this is good for the dollar. Why? Why is a trade war good for the dollar? Because people think, well, if we have tariffs, then America's trade deficit is going to go down, and therefore that's going to be good for the dollar. Well, first of all, our trade deficit is enormous. It should be much worse for the dollar than it is. Even if the tariffs shrink the trade deficit, it's not going away. We're still going to have a huge trade deficit. But to the extent the trade deficit goes down because of the tariffs, it's because American consumption goes down. It's because we buy less stuff because we can't produce the stuff ourselves. So if we're going to stop buying because of the tariffs, that means we just have less consumer spending, which is going to drag down the GDP. So this is not like some kind of big thing for the dollar if we have slightly less trade deficits. And of course, if our trade deficits come down, that means foreigners have fewer dollars that they need to recycle back into the bond market. So now they don't have to buy as many treasuries. Well, the, who's going to buy the treasuries? Everybody was bullish on the dollar because they thought everybody was going to be buying the treasuries. This, none of this stuff makes sense. In fact, a couple of days ago, I think on Wednesday, uh, Dallas Fed President uh, Dick Fisher was on television talking about tariffs and it, I mean, trade war. And he came out there again and repeated this conventional wisdom nonsense. And he said, well, you know, we don't have to worry about a trade war because Trade is a, a smaller part of our economy than in countries like Germany. And, and therefore, he said that, you know, it's no big deal if, you know, there's a drop in trade because it's not that important in America. And I would argue that trade is more important to the U.S. economy than any other country on the planet. And this is the reason. Yes, trade is a relatively small part of our overall GDP, but it's probably the most important part because we are importing all of the key things that everybody needs, right? And so if we can't import those products anymore, 
even though the actual product represents a smaller part of the GDP, if those products are no longer there, it's going to affect a much bigger part of the GDP, right? If, the, if, we, if, if Walmart doesn't have a bunch of products to sell, well, what happens to all the salaries of all the Walmart workers, right? If Walmart isn't selling as much stuff and it shuts down stores and it lays people off, the, the actual merchandise is a small part of what Walmart is contributing to GDP, right? You take away all the products that people are buying, then all of the infrastructure that's been built around those products collapses. So to think that, well, just because the actual dollar value of the stuff is a small part of our overall GNP, you got to look at all the other stuff that is built on top of that. You take out the bottom and everything else collapses. But it's not just the stuff that we're buying. It's the fact that we don't have to pay for it. We get all this stuff for free, right? We just export dollars, right? If we actually had to pay for the stuff, if we actually had to produce it, then we would feel the cost. Right now, we don't. We get to print all this money and we export it. We're exporting our inflation, right? Where that means we're not getting you know, punished as much. We're not feeling the pain of our monetary policy because we're sending that inflation abroad. We're exporting that pain. But you also have to look at the flip side. What happens to all those dollars, right, that we create out of thin air and send to other countries to buy all the stuff that they had to work hard to produce? They take that stuff, those dollars, and they buy our treasuries. They loan it right back to us. So that's keeping interest rates down. So our trade deficits, which are enormous and which are a big problem, and it's, an, it's evidence of an even bigger problem, and we're basically you know, bankrupting the country. We're, selling, you know, we're just selling off our assets and going into debt. But in the short run, yeah, you know, it's great because we live beyond our means. But what's happening in the here and now is these trade deficits keep consumer prices low because we export money and import stuff. So that keeps the price of stuff down, but it's also keeping interest rates down because the money is then loaned right back to us. Now, sure, we have to pay it back, but so far we don't pay any of it back because foreigners keep rolling over the bonds every time they mature. So it's just one gigantic Ponzi scheme. But we're benefiting from that Ponzi scheme and that it's propping up our entire economy. So if the trade deficits went away, the U.S. economy would collapse because we'd have nothing to buy and interest rates would be sky high. So guys like, you know, Dick Fisher still don't appreciate how much our current phony economy depends on the perpetuation of this relationship where we run huge trade deficits that the world recycles. Now, in the long run, this is terrible for us, but no one cares about the long run. All they care about is how to keep the scheme going, you know, up until the next election, which, you know, brings me to the point that I don't know that they can do it until the next presidential election. I mean, right now, all they care about are the midterm elections coming up in November. They want to keep this whole thing going until then, which potentially is why the Fed may not raise interest rates twice this year. I mean, in November, uh, well, December one would be, uh, would be after the election. But if things start slipping between now and November, uh, then there will be that pressure on the Fed to do something to help keep the music going, right, to help keep propping up the markets. But right now... Nobody is thinking about that. Nobody is actually looking at the facts. They're just operating in this delusion. And, you know, just like all of these delusions, eventually reality rears its head. And when it does, right, it is a huge market moving event because nobody is prepared for it, because nobody understands it. 
And we also got the industrial production numbers come out today. Not many people talking about it. I mean, we had the biggest drop in auto production in five years. I mean, the number came out negative, which was a surprise. But look at what's going on with the auto sector. I mean, I've been talking about the auto bubble for years. It's obvious now the air is coming out of it. And of course, you know, people buy cars on credit. So as interest rates go up, I mean, a lot of these cars are becoming more expensive. But it's not just the auto market. Look at the housing market. Look at the home building stocks. They're all in bear markets, right? Despite the fact that the NASDAQ made a new high this week, right? You've got bear markets in the home builders. So you got auto slowing down and you got home building slowing down. Why are home is home building slowing down? Mortgage rates are going up. Houses are becoming more expensive, but the cost of building is going up. Raw material prices are rising. The cost of insuring a home. If you buy a house, you got to get insurance. Well, insurance rates are rising. Plus, these insurance companies have to make up for big losses that they had with natural disasters. But these tariffs that Trump is imposing on steel, you use a lot of steel when you're building a house. And if the price of steel goes up, well, then it costs more to build a house. So you've got this the auto sector rolling over. You've got the housing sector rolling over. These are important sectors when it comes to employment, right? A lot of jobs in construction, a lot of jobs associated with the auto industry. These are the higher paying jobs too. If these sectors are turning down, then what's going to happen to the economy? I mean, people could be operating, I said, in this delusion, they're heading for a, a cliff and they're ignoring all the road signs, you know, that say danger ahead, you know, they, they, they're just, you know, Nothing, nothing phases them until by the time they get to the cliff, they're too close to slow down and they end up going over the edge of it. And that's exactly where we're headed. We're headed for the edge of a cliff and most of the people are going to go right over that cliff because they have no idea it's coming. But what I'm doing and what I'm you know, advising my clients to do is prepare for it. I understand what these signs mean. I know what's happening up ahead. Right? I don't know exactly the path to get there, but I understand what the signs are telling me and I know where we're headed. And to me, everything else is just noise. What I'm seeing in the real world, right, despite what the government wants me to believe, what I can actually tell is happening is validating what I've been saying. And I know people want to say, oh, Peter, you've been saying this stuff for a long time. I have been. And I think that what I've been saying is correct. The fact that a lot of the problems haven't manifest in a crisis yet doesn't invalidate what I'm saying. The crisis is the end game, right? By the time we have a crisis, okay, well, right, it's too late to do anything about what I'm saying. The warnings don't mean anything after the fact. They only mean something beforehand. And there's no way to time it perfectly. It's impossible. So either you're early or you're late. And if you're late, well, then you're, you're nowhere. You're done. So you got to be early. But the key is to recognize that even if you're early, that doesn't mean you're wrong and you don't have to give in to the temptation of joining the party where the party is occupied by a bunch of people who have no idea how wrong they are, right? And they're in that bus heading over that cliff. They might be having a great time. There's a lot of, maybe there's a lot of drinks on the bus and whoever, everybody's singing and dancing and having a big party. They have no idea what's in store for them. I don't want to get on that bus because I know what's going to happen, right? And I want to be someplace nice and safe and I'm, I'm going to ignore uh, the temptations. But everything I'm seeing is we can't, we don't have much time. I said, I don't think we're going to make it through the end of Trump's term. I really don't. Does it mean that it's impossible? No. But I think the odds are that we're not going to get through. 
And, and so we don't have that much longer to wait. I mean, it's this is happening. This is it. This is now. You just have to stay off of the ride. We want to be in uh, in a safe haven. We want to you know buy the dip uh, in gold. We want to sell the rallies in the dollar. We want to get into the real safe havens. We want to get into the investments around the world that will benefit from a weak dollar, that will benefit from a reversal in Fed policy, and that will ultimately benefit from the dollar no longer being the world's reserve currency, because that is where we're headed. And when that happens, then our ride on the global gravy train comes to an end. But a lot of the people around the world who have been doing all the heavy lifting, who have been pulling that train, the people who have been producing and saving and investing, those areas of the world are going to experience a boom. Right now, they're, they're being suppressed by this perverse system that is screwing up the glowing economy by having the dollar at the center when our economy is so dysfunctional. You can't have a reserve currency where the issuer is running massive uh, trade deficits and has no domestic savings. I mean, it doesn't make any sense for the dollar to be the reserve currency. When the dollar was backed by gold, when America had massive trade surpluses, okay, it made sense. But that world no longer exists. America took advantage of that unique privilege and took the world on a buggy ride. And now the global economy is screwed up as a result of this system, which is now coming to an end, right? This, it's not over yet, but we are in the final stages of this global monetary system. I don't know exactly what's going to replace it, but my feeling is we're going to go back to the type of monetary system that existed before uh, the U.S. dollar corrupted it. Thank you.